Welcome to the Brian Buffini Show, where we explore the mindsets, motivation, and methodologies of success. Here's your coach, Brian Buffini. Well, the top of the morning to you. Welcome to the Brian Buffini Show. I'm very excited for you guys today to listen to our guest, Mr. Stephen Kotler. Now, Stephen is a New York Times bestselling author. He's an award-winning journalist and the executive director of the Flow Research Collective. He's one of the world's leading experts on human performance. He has nine bestsellers out of 13 books, which is hard to do if ever you've tried, including his latest, which we're going to get into today, The Art of Impossible. The future is faster than you think, stealing fire, bold in abundance, and one that really uh, woke me up was the rise of Superman. And so he's been nominated for two Pulitzer Prizes, which is phenomenal. He's also the co-host of the Flow Research Collective Radio, which is a top 10 iTunes science podcast. Now, you're saying, what are we bringing a scientist on here for? Well, guys, if you've ever heard me talk about Flow and the times I got to spend with Mihai Csikszentmihalyi, who wrote that book, I mean, 30 years ago, I got exposed to this concept. I've infused many of these ideas into our goal writing exercises, the things we do in our coaching program that's helped hundreds of thousands of people. And so what I'm so excited about today is that Stephen has taken, I don't know if this will embarrass you, Stephen, or not, but I feel like you've taken this thing to a whole nother level here with flow. I'm so excited to have you on here today. This is subject matter that's changed my life. And uh, we're delighted to have you on here today and give your perspective. I'm delighted to be with you. I also have to, you get props from me, one, for the Pogues opening. I'm pretty sure that was the Pogues. Um, and two, you correctly pronounced Mike's name, which never happens. So well done. Well done. Nice. Well, I got a chance as I, we were talking off air. I was doing a series of events in Chicago 30 years ago. I was there for a couple of weeks. And my good friend, Joe Nego, who's been a regular on this show, said, hey, he had handed me the book Flow. It had just come out. And he was right down the street in the University of Chicago. And he was doing a series of 10 lectures. And it was open seating. And I couldn't believe it. You know, no one knew who he was at the time. He was this lecture. And I kind of walked in. I'm sitting in the front row. Wow. And I think about this yeah. years later. And I'm like, I had no idea. I had all of these pages and pages and pages of notes. And just extraordinary stuff that has really influenced my life significantly. So I'm so excited to have you here today. Now, we're going to get into that. And we're going to talk a little about flow. and obviously all the work you're doing. Before we dive into the newest book and all the work you have with The Art of Impossible, tell the folks a little background. Where are you from? Where'd you grow up? And uh, how did you get into this crazy line of work? Uh, I am from Chicago, but I grew up in Cleveland. I'm a, I'm a punk rock kid from the Midwest. Um, <laughs> Therefore, the Pogue reference. That's the yes, Pogue reference. Um, and uh, I got into... So uh, my whole career, uh, the easiest way to explain it is I have spent... 30 years studying those moments in time when the impossible becomes possible. When we see stuff that's not supposed to happen, that's never supposed to happen, whether it shows up in business or art or science or technology or whatever, that's been my domain. So that's been the, the center of my focus. And as you pointed out, you know, in your references to flow, flow is an optimal state of consciousness. We feel our best and we perform our best. Whenever you see people accomplishing the impossible, you tend to see people in a state of flow, 
which uh, is is what led me to that work. And I started as a journalist and then I started, you know, investigating flow that way. And then I kept going and kept writing books about it and eventually started the Flow Research Collective, uh, where we study the neurobiology of, uh, of flow and peak human performance. So what's going on in the brain and the body when yeah. people are performing at their best. And if I have added anything to, to Mike's brilliant work um, on flow, his focus was on the psychology. And he, you know, you can't touch his work on the psychology. Um, I've been focused much more on the neurobiology. And I and I the the difference really psychology is is incredibly useful, but if you want to make an experience reliable and repeatable, you want neurobiology. Psychology tends to be metaphor, neurobiology tends to be mechanism. We need them both. We need the dance and we need the music. <laughs> you know, we do and it's good stuff. You know, for those who may not have had the chance to read flow or understand where it's coming from. Ultimately, people refer to it in sports, someone being in the zone. In corporations, they'll say somebody's in their sweet spot. And then the moments in time when all of that just comes together and human performance really does have a chance to become extraordinary. What was the moment when you realized it was possible to achieve the impossible? I started my career, I became a journalist in the early 1990s. And the things I was, I was obsessed with neuroscience um, because in the 1990s, we, I was really interested in how, to, how do people work? How do human beings work? In neuroscience in the 90s, we started going from, okay, these are all the parts of the brain. This is how they work together to, oh, wow, now we can start decoding behavior, what people are actually doing. And so it was usually fascinating. The other thing I was fascinated by was action adventure sports, surfing, skiing, rock climbing, snowboarding and the like. And um, the 1990s in all action sports is often referred to as the era of impossible, where more so-called impossible feats, things that had never been done and were long believed were never going to be done. They weren't just being done. They were being iterated upon. And I spent about 10 years chasing professional athletes around mountains, across oceans, and, and, and seeing all this up front, up close and personal. And first of all, it, what they were doing was amazing. The performance itself was amazing. I'll give you one. We won't linger on action sports, but just so people understand what we're talking about. Surfing is a very old sport. It's a thousand years old. Progress is slow, right? For From 480 to 1996, the biggest wave anybody has ever surfed is 25 feet. Above that, ironclad law. No, it's totally impossible. Surfer can't paddle into a wave bigger than that. You can't ride a wave bigger than that. There are physics papers written about how you can't do that. And yet, um, Today, a couple decades later, surfers are routinely paddling into waves that are 60, 70, 80, 90. The record is now 115 feet for the biggest wave ever surfed. And that kind of progress was showing up all over action adventure sports. So one, the obvious question, what the hell is going on, right? Like, where is this coming from? Why is this coming from? More importantly, you don't have to know a whole lot about neuroscience to know that certain conditions produce peak performance and certain conditions don't. And the action adventure sport athletes I was spending all my time with, most of them came from really bad childhoods, like broken homes, really horrific childhoods. They had almost no money. They had very little education. There was a lot of drinking, drug use, a lot of risk taking in this community. Normally you put all those things together and what you get right. is jail right. or death, right? What you don't get is a group of people reinventing what's possible for our species over and over and over again. So my first, my question was, what the hell is going on? And the answer, part of the answer turned out to be flow. And that was, uh, that was sort of the start of that work. Amazing. Well, I'm coming to you from Carlsbad, California. 
we have a few surfers here, to say the least, and there's no doubt. You do, and my old my old friend Richie Schley lives yeah. there. You got a good mountain bike community. And it is a great group, because those guys were all about pushing the envelope and seeing what was possible, and took the generation before to you know scratch their head, what are you doing with a bicycle? What are you doing jumping off a mountain with a tiny little parachute? It was mind-bending. Why don't we just do this for a second? I would love this, the whole dynamic. You've spent 20 years of your life talking about flow and studying it and analyzing it from a perspective that it is very unique where you've come from. Talk to the folks that are listening today. They're like, hey, how do I do better at my job? How can I be a better realtor or salesperson or a mom or a dad or, a, you know, I'm a kid listening to this and I'm in college and I'm trying to make the team. How can flow be accessed by everyday ordinary folks like me and them to do this extraordinary thing? Let's give an operative definition of flow just so if you're listening and you don't know, quite know what flow is, here's what we're talking about. The shorthand definition that you've heard us using, Brian and myself, is a, an optimal state of performance where we feel our best and we perform our best. That's flow. More specifically, it refers to any of those moments of rapt attention and total absorption. We get so focused on the task at hand that everything else just seems to disappear. Action awareness merges, your sense of self, sense of self-consciousness that diminishes or goes away completely. Time dilates means it passes strangely. Usually it speeds up and you'll get so sucked into what you're doing. Five hours will go by in like five minutes. And throughout all aspects of performance, both mental and physical, go through the roof. And through the roof is not hyperbole. Uh, flow is a massive amplification of skills. So on the cognitive side, we see increases in motivation, uh, productivity, grit, creativity, learning, cooperation, collaboration, empathy, and environmental awareness, which is our ability to see and perceive the natural world. There's other, on the physical side, we get strength, stamina, endurance, fast twitch, muscle response, a bunch of other stuff. Um, but on the cognitive side, which is mostly where I focus my work, um, that we see a huge increase. Sometimes, uh, depending on whose studies you're looking at, uh, 500% above baseline is not kind of, that's the ballpark. For example, productivity has been measured 500% above baseline and flow. Creativity is like 400 to 700% above baseline. Department of Defense did uh, studies of soldiers in flow and studied their learning rates, and they found their learning rates were 240 to 500% above normal. So huge amplification in skills. So when we talk about peak performance, we're talking about a big peak. And here's the cool news. Here's the cool news for everybody. How evolution shaped human beings to perform at their best. What that means is we are all hardwired for flow. So anybody listening to us have this conversation can drop into flow. And how do you do that? Well, what we now know, flow is defined psychologically by core characteristics. It's by, defined neurobiologically by a bunch of different mechanisms in the brain. All that besides the point. To trigger those mechanisms, we now know flow states have triggers, preconditions that lead to more flow. Uh, probably back in the in in the nineties when you were hanging out with Mike, he was talking about three of them: clear goals, challenge skills, balance, and immediate feedback. Right? Those yep. are the first three discovered. Yep. We now know there are about twenty-two of them that have been discovered. Uh, there are twelve individual triggers which will drive me into flow by myself or Brian into flow by himself. And then there are group. There's group flow, a shared collective. Uh, flow state. So a team performing at their very best. And there are 10 group flow triggers. There are probably way more. This is what the community, the research community has discovered so far. And the really simple version is this. If you want more flow in your life, these triggers are your toolkit, right? That's what you reach for. We can go into a lot more detail, but that's the really simple version. I love that. The triggers are the toolkit. And I think that's the key. Give us your favorite triggers to help you get into a state of flow. You've written nine best-selling books. You've had rapt attention. 
and self-consciousness has gone away in your work. What do you do to help create a state of flow for yourself? It depends on the situation, right? Because different triggers, first of all, which tri- there are 22 triggers. Everybody's a little different. Which triggers are going to work best for me, different from you, um, and which triggers are going to work best in what situation, a little bit differently. I was skiing yesterday. I was in the terrain park and risk, fantastic flow trigger. That you know what I mean? Like I, we were fil- we were filming, and I sure. knew I hate skiing for the camera. It's my least favorite thing to do. And we were filming, and I knew I was like, okay, I got to drop into flow really fast. And so the first feature I saw, there was a tube I'd never seen before, and I was like, okay, that's novelty. Novelty is a flow trigger. Risk is a flow trigger. Let me do something new with the tube there that I've go. never done before. It doesn't have to be big, right? But just a little bit of risk, a little bit of novelty, drop me more into flow and. I said the flow has 22 triggers. They all do roughly the same thing. The flow follows focus. It only shows up when all of our attention is in the right here, right now. So that's what the triggers do. They all drive attention to the present moment. If I were to explain it neurobiologically, I would say, hey, the triggers do one of three things. They either drive norepinephrine and or dopamine into your brain. These are neurochemicals. They're mostly reward chemicals that reinforce behavior that the evolution wants more of. But... um. They're focusing chemicals. So when dopamine or norepinephrine is in our system, we just pay more attention and we're more excited about whatever is right in front of us or the triggers lower cognitive load. Cognitive load is all the crap you're trying to think about at any one time. And if I lower your cognitive load, I liberate extra energy that you can repurpose for attention. So we were talking about risk and novelty, which are two of my favorite flow triggers. Novelty and risk, by the way, both of them, whenever we brain encounters novelty, we get a little squirt of dopamine. Dopamine enhances focus. You know, and a little more of that, you'll start to move towards flow. So does uh, so does risk. But my favorite flow trigger is um, creativity, pattern recognition. So when we link ideas together, so when I I, I pulled into the terrain park, I saw a, a pipe that I like a pipe stretched horizontally across across the the jump. I'd never seen it before, but my brain went, oh. That pipe is a little bit like this thing that you did a shifty tail tap off of two weeks ago. I'll bet you could do it here. That's pattern recognition. And then I went and executed that tick, took a little Mm -hmm. risk. Pattern recognition also gives you a little bit of dopamine. We're all familiar with this, the cognitive version. Forget the physical version. Anybody who's ever done a crossword puzzle, a Sudoku, you get an answer right, that little rush of pleasure you get, that's dopamine in your system. And so that comes from pattern recognition, comes from creativity as well. I'm a writer, so this is my favorite flow trigger, right? Whenever you're doing cool things with language, you do a lot of podcasting when you're having a great conversation, you're doing cool things with words, right? That will trigger the pattern recognition start producing a little bit of dopamine can can drive us into flow that's probably my favorite trigger because as i said risk is a risk is a really good flow trigger but you don't want to like there are situations when you want to take a risk and there are a lot of <laughs> yeah, situations right. where you're like no no no, no that's, that's not going what from I'm flow to fail right, right? Yeah. you'll love this so i took mihai's work and put it into goal writing so we've put through our seminars we put three million people through the process of physically writing goals with us. And we actually wrote music, soft, classical, Baroque-style music, to relax that right-side, entertainment-seeking side of the brain to help create a state of flow. And we've done this all over the world for 25 years. And we'll have people write goals. You know, they're at a two-day conference. And we'll do this exercise for 18 minutes. And we've created all these patterns over the years. And I've even had guys, we've actually written music for this. And... 
people will come out of it like a submarine coming out of the water. And they'll it'll be like, and I go, now, come on back to me. Finish up, finish up. And they'll go, we just started. Like, no, that was 18 minutes. And for some of these people. Go, yeah, goal setting in general can produce a little bit of dopamine. Clear yeah. goals is yeah. a flow trigger, right? Right. And clear goals work as a flow trigger because they lower cognitive load. Clear goals are nothing more than a daily to-do list, right? We're not talking about high, hard goals or mission level goals. You need, so in The Art of Impossible, the new book, um, which is all about the biology of peak performance, most of it's about flow, but there's a bunch of other stuff. Uh, we talk about goal setting and they're the, the, our biology is hardwired for three levels of goals. Um, we want mission level goals to sort of steer from. So I'm a writer. A mission level goal for a writer is I want to be the greatest writer in the history of the universe. And by the way, that's an actual title. I didn't know if you knew that. That's a thing. (laughs) You get a cape with it. Um, Yeah, uh, that's a thing. Uh, And so that's the mission level goal, right? A high hard goal, um, which is a great way to boost motivation. Higher goals are like the one to five year chunks. So I want to be the greatest writer in the history of the universe. I want to write a book on flow. I want to write a book on focus. I want to write a book on fishing. What you know, take your pick. I want to get a degree in journalism. All the sub steps that go into that. And my clear goals this is my daily to do list. I want to write five hundred words today that make my readers feel joy, or you know, whatever I want them to feel, kind of thing. That's a clear goal. Now, clear goals, Mike discovered way back in the day. Um, are a flow trigger because they lower cognitive load. As a general rule, we're holding our to-do list in our head, right? And it's taking up space. And um, once we export it, um, you and by the way, ex- when, you, when we export, when we write it down, you want to write by hand if you can. It's better than, uh, it's better than typing. Um, but that clear goal list lowers cognitive load and it works as a flow trigger. You can also use goals like in a situation. Say I'm, you know, you're a golfer and... Uh, you're shooting really well, and then you're like two holes from from finishing, and you're like, "Holy crap! If I par the next two holes, you know, I'm gonna hit a." You're talking gonna, about last Saturday for me, okay. okay? And 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 help me, help me, please, <laughs> yeah, you me, because I but, so, I spit the bit, I threw up all over myself. My mother has been pl- trying to shoot under a hundred. For 22 years, she did it for the first time two days ago. I was so proud of her. 22 years. She's 80 years old. Finally shot under 100. That's awesome. So tell me, what do I do? Because I got out of it. I had been totally focused. And then I made the mistake. We were backed up on the 17th tee. I'm waiting around. I added up my score. And I went, huh, okay. This will be my lowest score in a tournament in the last five years. And then I proceeded to think about everything other than what I was supposed to do. So... There is an argument in the flow community about this very thing. And it started with golfers. So there's a group out of Australia led by a guy named Christian Swan, brilliant guy, though I think he's wrong, um, who says, hey, wait a minute. There's a different state. Uh It's called clutch. Clutch is what happens when you're in flow and then you realize you're like two shots off the lead. And if you write, you do exactly what happened to you. And then some people, most of us fall apart, right? Like most of us just fall apart. Some people can shift into what they're calling clutch. I still think it's flow, but it doesn't matter. So yes. So here's, here's what happened to you. You asked my favorite flow trigger, and this is probably, uh, this is probably it though. I like creativity, but it's what's known as the challenge skills ratio. So flow follows focus. We pay the most attention to the task at hand when the challenge of the task slightly exceeds our skill set. So you want to stretch, but not snap. Now this is um, this is a little tricky because for shy or timid or people, 
you're pat when you're using your skills to the utmost you're outside your comfort zone not a lot but you're a little bit outside your comfort zone you got to get used to that for um really type a types the problem is they'll take on huge tasks so much bigger right yeah. just for the fun of it and the problem is then there's too much anxiety so it's this very mellow center balance between boredom, not enough stimulation, I'm not paying attention, and anxiety, whoa, way too much, I'm paying too much attention. Too much anxiety produces too much norepinephrine. Little bit of norepinephrine is fantastic. It drives focus, it's excitement, drives flow. Too much norepinephrine, we have a different word for that. We call that anxiety, right? Like we, <laughs> high blood pressure. Yeah, high blood pressure. So what you did is you upped the challenge skills balance at a time that you probably shouldn't have, right? So it went from, you know, that's what, that. by the way, that's one of the reasons I hate filming i was skiing yesterday right and i'm in my sweet spot it's all going great and no you want to bring out a camera you know what i mean like no i'm an introvert i don't want i think i'm feeling good man we're not keeping score i think i know what i'm doing don't tell me i'm not (laughs) you know and so this is a big thing because you got so much good stuff you're talking about when you have rapt attention your self-consciousness goes away well what happens is when anyone's about to do something especially publicly And we're in a world today where rapt attention is under attack every second of the day. And being connected and disconnected from our self-consciousness is every hour of the day. And everything's on YouTube or Instagram or Snap or whatever the heck you want to put it on. How do we keep rapt attention and how do we stay away from this becoming just so consumed what other people think? You're not wrong. And... Flow follows focus. So obviously, complete concentration is the first flow trigger. You are biologically hardwired to focus in 90-minute blocks. I know that sounds weird, but you, we all know this because we know REM cycles are 90 minutes long, right? Well, the body, well, things that work get repeated over and over. So we have a sleep cycle that's 90 minutes long. We have a waking focus cycle that's 90 minutes long. So what we tell people to do is when you make your clear goals list for the day, right, your to-do list for the day, Start your day, try to start your day with your hardest task and what by hardest task or the task that if you complete is the biggest win for the day, right? And devote 90 minutes of uninterrupted concentration. So how do you do this in the conditions you've been describing? We teach people to practice distraction management ahead of time, um, which is to say, shut down everything that's going to knock you out of flow in advance. There's really good work on coders uh, that says that for example, coders use, use flow all the time to do their job. They, they need that uninterrupted focus to, to, to be good at their job. In studies of coders, they find that if they get knocked out of flow by a distraction, if they can get back into it at all, which is dicey, takes at least 15 minutes. So flow is hyper productivity. Somebody knocks in your door. Somebody sends you a text messages. You get knocked out. The thing that I really, and this is also one thing to pay attention to is if you're switching between tasks, right? It's really easy. If you're a professional and you're any good at your job, chances are when you're doing the things that you're paid to do that you actually are good at and like doing, you're going to be in flow, right? I'm writing. Most of the time I'm in some sort of a flow state because I'm a professional writer, right? I've got my writing job and then I've got my next task, which is this I have to run a meeting at the Flow Research Collective. Something else I've done for a long time and I can go to group flow. But what do you do in between, Right. And a lot of people are like, oh, I got five minutes between my writing task, my, right? And my next thing, I'm going to get online. I'm going to get on the internet. I'm going to get a Facebook. I'm gonna... The problem is you're in flow. You can go into your next task and carry that in with you, or you can go get distracted. The problem is that the minute something 
kind of moves you emotionally, good or bad. That's especially if it's bad, right? Like if you if you posted something on Facebook and you go to Facebook in the five minutes between tasks and you didn't get enough likes or somebody made a mean comment about your shirt or whatever the hell it is, right? Like that emotion is gonna, suddenly there's anxiety. Oh, I'm upset, right? So not only did you lose focus, you just tilted the entire challenge skills balance because you've got anxiety in your system, you've got more effort in your system. So we are distractible beings, right? Like we are just, just in, in general, we have salience networks, which are primed to look at novelty and, you know, things like that. So you got to sort of get out in front of it is how I think about it. And I, the way I always explain it to people is I work for the boss. The boss is who I am yesterday yeah. when I made my to-do list. I love this. Right. Who I am today in the now. No, you give the choice to me right now, today, and then I'll be like, where the God, where, P- Patty Van Winkle, give me a drink, right? Like, I mean, no, in the now, I like, I want to go skiing. I want to go hang out and play with my dog, right? I don't want to do the work. I don't, so I always try to remember I worked for the boss. And the boss is the guy who, you know, created the to-do list in the first place and said, your life is going to be better if you do these things. So when it shows up, I don't have a choice and I don't, I, I don't allow myself the distractions. I, I, I go at it with a kind of a self-discipline thing, but having it like thinking about like the person who wrote the to-do list as the boss and, and that little bit of third person objective distance, I find very useful. Other people have found it very useful as well. No, I love it. I love it. And you know, like I say, people with working out or exercising or eating right, you made your decision ahead of time. In the now, it's pizza, chips, and cookies, you know? Yeah, for sure. Remember, just remember you work for the boss. <laughs> I love it. Well, listen, we have a great book buying, book reading audience. And I've had a chance to get an early copy of The Art of Impossible. It's a peak performance primer, which I love that little shout out. That's old school world to new school neuroscience. For a little bit here, share for the folks what they're going to get from this book. Yeah, for sure. We've been talking a lot about flow. So let's, one, let's go back to where we started. Peak performance is nothing more or less than getting our biology to work for us rather than against us. That biology, it flows a part of it, but it's actually a limited set of things. And there's a bunch of skills that fall under the heading of motivation, right? Psychologists use the term motivation. They mean extrinsic motivation, intrinsic motivation, goals and grit. So there's a, it's a catch-all. Then there's a bunch of learning skills bunch of creativity skills and a bunch of flow skills. And those most may sound like divergent, crazy categories. What does one have to do with another? First of all, this is the full kind of cognitive peak performance toolkit. But the way to think about it is whatever the situation, whatever the task is, motivation gets us into the game. Learning allows us to continue to play. Creativity is how we steer. And flow is how we amplify the results sort of beyond all reasonable expectation. That's the whole okay, that, thing. Now, hold on. I want you to say that again because that was liquid gold. I know you're doing this every day, but for those of us who are not, I, you need to say that again because that was so good. In peak performance, motivation gets us into the game. Learning allows us to continue to play. Creativity, creative problem solving, it's how we steer. And flow, which is the state of optimal performance, is how we turbo boost the results beyond all reasonable expectation. And that's it, by the way. So one thing to know as a final thing to kind of wrap this up, I guess, for people, The Art of Possible is a book written about lessons learned from people who have gone after capital I impossible, that which has never been done, right? It's meant to be used by anybody who's interested in what I call small I impossible, lowercase I impossible, that which we think is impossible for ourselves. But the truth of the matter is 
because the biology is, is, is the same. What gets you to capital I impossible is what gets you to small I impossible. Or if you're just listening to me talking, you're like, shut up, dude. I don't care about the impossible. I just want to be a little more productive and work on Monday. Toolkit's the same. It's just our biology. So um, it's the, you're working with the same tools and how big you want to go. It's entirely up to you. I'm right there with you, you know, and as a coaching company, we have people who are making a hundred grand a year and we have people who are making five million a year, you know, and the dynamic is for some people, the big I is I've never been out of debt or I've tried to lose 20 pounds for 20 years. And what I love about your work is that it's the same formula. Of course, it's the same formula. We're all like, you know what I mean? We're all shaped by evolution. We're all biological creatures. It's one of these, these like truths that's so obvious, but we get so wrapped up in, in all, in all this talk of talent and, you know, natural ability and the genetic. And those things play a role for sure, but not nearly as big of a role as you think. Let's be candid. It also gives the great excuse maker. You know, we see somebody doing something extraordinary who has a lot of talent. And they're optimizing their talent. And they go, well, I was just at the back of the bus when they were giving out talents and gifts. And we have a process for actually uncovering people's talents so we can coach them. And we literally will interview people and they say, well, I'm excited to see this because I'm 40 years of age and I don't think I have any abilities. I always tell people when we, when we, we do some strength work, because if, if you can work in such a way that you're utilizing a new strength or an old strength in a new way, it, it tends to produce a lot of flow. This is Martin Seligman and Chris Peterson's work. So that's great. So we, ha- you know, go th- we do the same thing. And one of the things I always point out to people is, remember there, are, I talk about what I call invisible skills. And I, the example I always give is, if you grew up in a household where mom and dad drank too much and got in arguments and you're, you got really good at keeping the peace in a violent, aggressive situation, that's an amazing invisible skill. Like you can diffuse an argument like in like in the real world. Oh, my God, you're gold, right? Like that's amazing. We interviewed Matthew McConaughey and McConaughey. He grew up in a situation like that. His mom and dad were married three times, divorced twice. The crazy type nonsense. But the skills that he learned to do that is why he's able to play all these different roles. He uses that gift, that talent, that strength. Oh, well, I mean, look, I, I grew up a little. I grew up in some tricky situations. And when you grow up in tricky situations, when it's tricky at home and it's tricky at school, you get really observant. You get, I get, I, like you, you get really good at watching people and going, is this safe? When's it dangerous? When's it safe? When's it dangerous? When's it safe? I, like, I, one of the reasons I'm really good at my job is I'm a phenomenal cold reader of, any, of situations because you have to do that to survive when you're growing up hard a little bit. Um, those are really amazing skills, phenomenal skills in the, in the real world. Um, all right. You know, another one, and this was one that I had to realize I was a bartender through college and grad school, right? That's how I paid my, how I got through them. And as a bartender, my tips, my income came from my ability to talk to anyone and make them laugh. I'm going to get you to like me and I'm going to make you laugh and I'm going to get you to drink more so I can have your money. That's the game, right? And I got really good at it. And as a result, I could talk to anybody. So when I became a journalist, fantastic, because I've already got the skill. Put me in a room with anybody. I'm good. I know how to do this. I'm better if they're drinking, but, you know, I'm good. I'm good at it. You know what? It, it works. It works. I'm going to say this. The Art of Impossible is a very cool book. Thank you, sir. I love The Rise of Superman because that was kind of a mind blower. But The Art of Impossible, as a guy that leads a company that coaches people, I just think is a very, very useful, understandable, 
powerful where you bring the science and the practical together and create a kind of a roadmap for people. They know what the heck to do. So I just, I just wanted, that's exactly, I'm so happy you said that. I like, because the science is, is, it's what's not new is the bits and pieces, right? We've, we've known about focus is important. Mindfulness is important. Gratitude is important or goals are important. Like we've known these things for a long time. What has happened in the past five, six years is we're figured out that, oh, wait a minute. This is a sequence. There's an order. It's all the same system. And if you you use the system the way it's designed to be used, you just get farther faster with a lot less fuss. That's the big deal, right? I mean, you can use a vacuum cleaner and a hammer and a nail, but it's not the most effective way to use that. You know what I mean? Farther faster with a lot less fuss. That's my new phrase. I love that. That's awesome. Yeah, by the way, I've never met an alliteration that I don't like. <laughs> well, as an Irishman, we lived off it. You know what I mean? I know. I know you do. You, I mean, well, James Joyce, you can't. You, you, can't, you got the forefather of let's do fun things with language. Great stuff. Well, listen. This has been great. I mentioned to you I have five rapid-fire questions I want to finish with. Hit me. And you told me you want to win this. So whatever that is. I, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm here to win. Let's go. First of all, what's the single best piece of advice you've ever received? John Barth, who I studied under grad school, is sort of the godfather of American metafiction style of writing. He, he, said, he, he was talking to me about writing styles. What he, he, he said you can never have too many um, arrows in your quiver. And what he meant basically is – Get great at everything that surrounds your craft. So don't just learn how to write prose great. Learn how to write poetry. Learn how to write marketing copy, advertising copy. Do it out loud. Like he's he's basically saying surround your craft and get excellent at everything that touches it. And I thought that has it's one of the things I it's one of the reasons I think I have a career as a writer where a lot of the people I came up with don't. It's because the business fell apart three or four times over the past 20 years. And right because I had like because I was good at like seven or eight things like the, you know, the publishing goes away. But like, all right, so I got to write grants for two years to like survive. Cool. I can do that. You know what I mean? Like, so that was really great advice to me. That's brilliant. What a reference for where we're at in the world today. You know, like I say, journalism went away. (laughs) You know what I mean? So. The fact that you have all these tools, what a great piece of advice. That's wisdom. You've done well with it. I think that's a piece of wisdom that can translate for everybody listening today. So I've won the first question, people. You won. For those of you keeping home at score, my answer was better than Magic Johnson's. Yeah, uh, that was strong. That was strong. Number two, (laughs) what one talent or gift do you wish you possessed that you currently don't? Oh, my God. I would... I'm a lifelong athlete. I'm mean, a lifelong, and I come from a natural born, my family are natural born athletes and they got all the talent. I got zero. Like I, every inch of athletic talent that I have has been like hard earned, really hard earned. So I don't, a little fast twitch muscle response might be nice. <laughs> That's, you know? awesome. That's awesome. That also <laughs> is an answer I've never heard. And we've done hundreds Good. of these things. That's great. I wish I had fast twitch muscles. That's great. I married an African-American gal who's a, an Olympian. She was a champion hurdler. She's a volleyball player. And all my kids got the fast twitch. Let me ask you this. Which book has been most instrumental in your life? So there's a book called Bone Games by a guy named Rob Schultes, which was the book. He, was the, he wrote a book in the 80s, like before she sent me a high put out flow. So he, was, he must have been reading Mike's papers. Bone Games is a book about like the overlap between endurance sports and like 
Native American vision quest rituals and a whole bunch of like weird stuff like that. But they're all flow triggers. They all produce flow. And he said, hey, all these things seem to be the same. And he started talking about the neurobiology of flow. And I was at the time, right, psychology wasn't all that interesting to me. It was too squishy. I wanted mechanism. How did, what's, what makes it reliable and repeatable? And he, so he was speaking my language. So that book, um, and there's another book by a guy named David Quammen called The Song of the Dodo. I'm a huge lifelong environmentalist. Um, I've, you know, I've, I run an animal sanctuary. I've, I've worked in this field for a very long time. And Song of the Dodo is the best overview of systems ecology, island budget Africa, the current environmental crisis, everything is super fun book to read. So I like that to me was hugely influential uh, for that half of my, my work. Very cool. Very cool. I don't know if you're much of a movie watcher or not, but what's the one movie Blade Runner. that every time it's Blade on, Runner. you kind of stop? Blade Runner. Blade Runner. Come Blade on. Runner. Not That's even a it. question. What is it about Blade Runner? What is it about that that does it for you? Oh, um, well, okay. Probably more than anything else, the single thing I like best in literature is heroic resignation. Um, and Blade Runner is like cyberpunk techno heroic resignation. Like that's really oh, what wow. it is, right? Wow. Too bad. You should have written too, the copy too, for the movie. Bad, that's awesome. Too bad she won't live. Then again, who does? I mean, like that's all heroic. Heroic resignation, if you, if you, in literature, it's a, it's a hard truth followed by a harder undercut. So it's like two hard truths in a row. Um, and uh, and that's and that's how you that's how you produce it. Um, and they were great at it. Yeah. Wrapped in techno punk. Love it. OK. Last but not least, there's got to be something left on your bucket list. Oh, my God. The list is so long. Um, I t- t- hang out with mountain gorillas is very high on my bucket list. I haven't done that um, at all. And I and hang around with mountain gorillas. I, you know, the last I tried to I tried to go. um before, right before Rwanda exploded, you know, before the genocide. And um, I was actually, I, I think it was a story for like National Geographic or something. And we got the warning. Like we got, like I, the trip got canceled because there was civil unrest in Rwanda. And that civil unrest turned out to, you know, 800,000 dead later. Crazy. Well, hopefully better times ahead. And that's one of the things. And like I said, I think post-COVID, we're all looking forward to looking back at our bucket list and seeing what we can check off one at a time oh and by the way anybody out there who owns a helicopter wants to take me helicopter in the himalayas helicopter ski in the himalayas anywhere anywhere have helicopter will travel i had a guide nils was his name who led he's up in british columbia and every year he would go over and do these helicopter ski tours down the himalayas and i got him with my son it was a kind of this is going to put hair on your chest uh, trip for my son that ended up revealing i had no hair on my chest because Nils took us up the wrong side of a glacier. We helicopter into this place. And let me tell you, I was not in a state of flow. I was in a state of anxiety. But we figured it out and got it done and came down the mountain alive. So I'm glad you lived. Well, let me tell you, my friend, this has been great. Great time. I hope you've enjoyed being with us today. It's been super fun, Brian. Thank you for your time. I'm a big fan of your work. I'm a big fan of what you've done. It's blessed my life and I've used to bless a lot of other people. I love the new book, The Art of Impossible. I think it's going to go great. I think the time is now. And coming out of this dynamic of where our culture has been, I think a lot of people are ready for a peak performance primer. So great job on the book. Thanks for being our guest today. As we head off today, I'm going to leave you with a little Irish blessing that the original person who got me into a state of flow was my mom. And here's my mom, Therese, with a little Irish blessing today. May the road rise up to meet you. And may the wind always be at your back. May the rain fall soft upon your fields, 
and the sun shine warm upon your face. And until we meet again, may God hold you in the hollow of his hand. See you next time. Oh, 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 oh,